Hi, welcome back to Behind Startup Lines, the podcast where we speak to founders, operators, and VCs about building successful businesses. As always, our focus in these discussions is on the commercial side of growing a company through winning and retaining customers. In this episode, I'm joined by Guillaume Descott, CEO and founder of Vialma, a multimedia streaming service dedicated to classical music, jazz, and the arts. Vialma's mission is to enrich our lives through the beauty that is found in art. As a fully remote business with offices in London and Paris, Vialma is successfully breaking new ground in the media sector. Guillaume's story of transitioning from being an investor to a startup founder is fascinating. His experience on the founder side of the fence, dealing with the daily pains and challenges of building a business, are inspiring. In this episode, we talk about what it means to truly understand a customer's pain point and how, in many cases, people just don't have pain points as such. We also discuss the current state of funding in Europe and how the most efficient form of capital right now comes from winning more customers. Guillaume is a fascinating person who is equally willing to share his love of the arts and what it takes to build a successful business. Let's hear what he had to say. Guillaume, welcome to this episode of Behind Startup Lines. It's great to see you again. Uh, thanks, Phil, for having me. I'm delighted to be in your podcast. Thanks. We're going to talk a bit about your current project, but I think what's really interesting about your story is that you come from the other side of the fence as well. You have experience of working on the investment side, both as a family office and I think it was a VC. And I'm really interested to dive into your experience of as a founder who came from that world, because you've got probably unrivaled insight to what it's like to build a business from the ground up, having seen many others do it. So I'm delighted you're with us today, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Uh, thanks so much. Uh, so it's true that uh, I started in private equity uh, just after graduating from my uh, business school. And uh, the reason I did that, it's because I, I, I had in mind to start my business because uh, I come from a family of uh, entrepreneurs. Not only my parents are entrepreneurs, but uh, out of uh, 15 cousins, you've got only two employees and they're civil servants. And all the other ones uh, managed to be independent uh, one way or another at a point in time in their career. And so um, it's kind of in our genes, I would say, in, in the myths of... Uh, of uh, yeah in, our, in in the family myths and so uh, I thought that uh, a great way to learn would be to start in private equity because I would be exposed uh, to a lot of different business models a lot of entrepreneurs a lot of situations also uh, good or bad and uh, and 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 it's true that I did that said, did it really prepare me? I think it, it really grew my capacity to analyze and, and figure out what are the core factors of a successful business model. But uh, there are many ways of saying that uh, you're very far from it. It's just uh, that basically you have a bird view of the business and then suddenly you jump and you figure out that uh, even if you thought you had a parachute, you actually don't. And then you have to manage uh, all the way down. Uh, in order not to crash as you're getting closer to reality that's uh, one one way one way to put it the other way is that you're kind of a spectator and you don't you're not really a, a doer and so you you know how the film goes but you don't necessarily know how to how to play 
the the great things which I've uh, learned because you, you there are also some amazing things through this experience is the fact that uh, you you um, you you're deeply aware that there are cycles in the economy I think after private equity or venture so you've got ups and downs and you need to be ready for this the the entire private equity industry is uh, cyclical. We we've got uh, you've got, you've got a certain time to invest. Uh, it will always overlap an economic uh, crisis. And when I started my career, we we had a I, I had one at the beginning of my school with my first internships, and then uh, another one just after uh, moving out of the of the business school. So it's it, it's really uh, th- that was probably my biggest uh, finding is that you need to get ready, brace yourself for uh, hard times. Uh, and you need to really know what's the value of what you're selling and how much you can sell it uh, through time. Like, how can you protect the value that you're delivering to your customers? Yeah, that's a great insight, uh, Guillaume. It, that, that kind of rise and fall of the markets and the impact that that has. And we're in a really interesting period now in the middle of 2023 where the market is resetting, particularly around investment and in software. But we're going to unpack some of that as we get deeper into it. But why don't you tell our listeners a bit more about um, Vialma and your, your project that you're working on now and really what drove you to make that switch from being part of a private equity into founding your own company. Yeah, so Viama, everything is in our brand name. Uh, it means in French, live with the wonders of art, vivre avec les merveilles de l'art. And also in Latin, via is the, the journey and the road. And alma is, uh, it means uh, nourishing. Like uh, when you graduate from university, it's your university is called Alma Mater. It's the nourishing mother. So living with the wonders of arts is a, is a nourishing journey. And um, in my thought process, when I was working in private equity, I was obsessed with uh, impact, it, impact investing. It wasn't called like that uh, 10, 15 years ago, but it was, uh, it was still what was uh, obsessing me. And um, I started uh, uh, investing in sustainable development and in professional training. And I, uh, I thought that uh, there was uh, something around our education throughout life and uh, what really matters to us. And uh, I could see that uh, uh, self-development uh, literature is uh, exploding in libraries. So everybody's looking for happiness. Everybody's looking for a sense of purpose. Uh, whether you're a company, you're looking for uh, something meaningful that your employees are going to embrace or at a personal level, why you're here and uh, why you're doing this. And so, uh, and I thought that actually uh, all of those books were kind of uh, hairsets of uh, what great artists and philosophers have been telling to us for like five, six thousand years. And, uh, and, it, and I always thought that it was better to listen to the source rather than uh, some replicas of replicas of what someone would have said. So I, this, is at the, this is at the core foundation of, uh, of Vyama, basically. Is that the, 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 the bridge between the two is that I was doing private equity to figure out how to run my business and I was obsessed with the impact that uh, our activities uh, have and I wanted to build something with a, with a sense of purpose and that's why I picked uh, Viama among uh, many ideas I, I had. I'm still a business angel though uh, and I invest uh, uh, in, s- in several uh, other activities and they're only uh, impact uh, related whether it's education or um, say or a, a better th- products and services for uh, uh, protecting our planet. 
Great. Thank you for, for sharing the, the history behind that. It's amazing uh, story about how you came up with the name. But but tell us about the service. The service is a music service, yes, uh, or an arts service. How would you describe it? Yeah, yeah. so it's a streaming service dedicated to music and the arts. So uh, the, the concept is that we create for you playlists and music or art programs uh, according to your tastes and uh, what you want to experience at a specific point in time during your day. Uh, so that you can genuinely enrich your your life with something meaningful. So we have a B2C activity, which works, uh, it's a subscription base, and we're distributed by uh, different telecom operators. We have a TV channel for Samsung also. And uh, at the same time, we have a B2B activity where we, we give our tech and our catalog to brands or cultural institutions which uh, need uh, streaming in order to engage their audiences, raise more funds, uh, or express their message and their brand uh, differently. Great. And where can people find uh, the service? All right, so we've got a, so you can type viama.com or you can download our mobile app. Uh, we're on the app stores on uh, Apple and uh, Android. Uh, you can also find us on Samsung as I was saying we've got a fast channel called Viana Classic and Jazz and I forgot the channel I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll get it uh, by the end of the podcast I hope and um, uh, otherwise with <laughs> on television with different uh, telecom operators including Free in France which is the second one but for our B2B activity, if you're, uh, you can find us also if you're a sponsor of Opera de Paris, you will be able to use uh, our service. If you're an employee of Crédit Agricole, it's an investment bank in France, you will be able to have uh, amazing music advent calendars every year. And if you're in London and you're a student, you can uh, register to Student Pass. It's a ticketing service for students. And our take on this was that uh, students don't go to classical concerts so it's that much because they don't know the music and so we built a streaming playlist uh, a streaming service with playlists uh, that uh, students can uh, enjoy for them to discover their taste and uh, book the most relevant tickets related to this so uh, my obsession in a way is uh, how listening to music and interacting with a work of art is going to trigger something to you either it's going to trigger like genuine insight about life or it's going to make you want to go to a museum or uh, a concert venue to listen to music. So the other thing that you can uh, try out is uh, studentpulse.co.uk uh, that we've been running for uh, about a year now, a bit less than a year. It, it sounds like partnerships are an important channel for you. You, you mentioned a few there, both in terms of the, the content providers, but also just distribution. Um, we'll, we'll get back to what it must have been like taking that leap out of the, the PE plane into starting your own business. But just talk to us a bit about the importance of partnerships early on in building a business. Uh, that's a very good point. So I think we are in an industry where you have to be genuine uh, in whatever you, you do and you have to be long term. It takes, uh, it takes a lot of time. Uh, a concert hall will program a whole season, so it's a year. They, most of the time uh, for a festival, they will be working two to three years in advance uh, in classical music. So you have to be uh, long-term and to be tenacious. <laughs> and 
and to have quite a lot of stamina, I would say. Because when you're starting small uh, and you miss an opportunity of a festival, you have to wait another year, and so it's a, it's a, it can be long. So I think that uh, you have to be very genuine in your approach, in the fact that you want to bring value um, into an economy which is uh, struggling and the business models are quite frail. Uh, and at the same time, you have to be extremely genuine with your uh, audience. Uh, you have to, you, you, because we're talking about art and we're talking about uh, enriching lives. We're not talking about uh, just uh, selling a product which would be overpriced. So um, uh, it's a, uh, I, I would say, yeah, sincerity is one of the key factors for the partnerships that we're going to build. The second one is the fact that we always had in mind to share the value as much as possible uh, and for this we were even appointed by the UNESCO to write a policy brief about fair remuneration for music in the digital age um, and for us it has it, it, we, we, we took it as like a recognition for what we were doing we were very happy it was uh, it's probably my best chocolate medal so far as a as an entrepreneur it's this uh, it's this policy brief for UNESCO that you can download uh, that you can download online uh, and so you uh, being able to share what you have uh, to artists uh, is also uh, with artists sorry, is, uh, is, uh, is super important um, and um, being able also to guide your partners in what is relevant ahead of uh, ahead of them so you've got new technologies uh, coming every year you know now for example everybody's obsessed about ai a year ago everybody was obsessed about nft and then the year before it was something else in music it's just music has this particularity uh, and arts in general to be kind of like more than shaped every year by something big and so being able to accompany your partners and, and telling them uh, what to choose, when to embrace a specific technology is, uh, is very important. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so long term sharing and being ahead of the game uh, with, as reg regarding uh, tech, uh, but uh, wisely, not uh, stubbornly ahead of other people, because this is how you burn the cash that you took uh, years to collect yes well let, let's just talk quickly then about what the music industry is thinking at the moment around ai if you wouldn't let's digress a little about that what, what's the current view on the impact of ai within the industry that you work with well it's it's, it's going to be it's going to be huge it's actually going to be so huge that um, you can't precisely say what's going to happen nobody has a good crystal ball i think and i don't want to be like uh, I, i'm not pretending to be like david bowie doing this very famous interview at the very beginning of the internet saying like yeah. uh, but i i think that <laughs> <laughs> so the so it, it, it is the where you can see that it's going to be very big is that it's already integrated one way or another in very different layers and and it has very pragmatic impact as as well as uh, game changing ones so of course everybody's talking about uh, ai composed music and what would be the rights associated to it but there are there are very, there are a lot of other things uh, which are already uh, in place uh, the algorithms to recommend music uh, somehow it's uh, AI the, the the very basics were not but now it's uh, it gets really really sophisticated 
the the way to edit uh, images, uh, to edit uh, music, and to do post-prod. So it's already there with very pragmatic uh, tools. Actually, more than saying what is going to happen, because uh, we can't really know, being able to frame the debate today so that we can control what's going on and that we know what we're testing, I think this is uh, I think this is very important, and that's why the legislation which was built by the European Commission. I think that it's it's far from being perfect, but it's a great step forward. I know that everybody says you should you you'd better break stuff and then afterwards uh, fix it. I tend to disagree. When you look at uh, our planet, for example. Uh, what would have happened to us if in the 1945 or in 1950 we would have regulated the way we produce um, uh, pesticides and um, and, ger- and uh, uh, fertilizers for uh, for the farming industry? I'm sure that we would have found another solution in the meantime, and we would be better off today. So I think we we shouldn't disregard uh, regulation. It could help us in uh, being. Uh, better at uh, innovating, uh, and then I think that uh, the, the the very short the, the very short term impact that I can see is that it it, it strengthens this uh, sand uh, timer shape that 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 things have in the music industry, which is that you have a lot of people at the bottom who don't earn anything, and then or it's more like a pyramid actually. A lot of people at the very top. Uh, who would uh, who would earn very little and they have to be very very skilled like if you're an artist today and you want to make a living you have to know everything about law about marketing about on top of music uh, about touring about uh, so the skills of an artist today are way bigger than 10 years ago and it was even bigger than 20 years ago so for artificial intelligence I think the, the, the main impact is that it's going to make things even more complex which means that artists will need even more help uh, in order to be able to deliver their message. Thank you again for sharing that insight to the music industry. I mean, what's happening, a lot of industries are getting disrupted or a lot of opportunities being created around AI and it's just good to get a perspective from someone who's in the heart of the music industry about the impact that it's having. And I'm sure there are a lot of people trying to figure out what, what's going to ha- occur next. Um, but it is, it's exciting times. There's a lot of good things as well as uh, difficult things that we've got to deal with. So thank you for that. Um, let's go back to this point then in your career where you were standing in the door. I described, you, you mentioned a parachute. So here I have this vision of you standing in the door of the PE airplane, ready to jump into action. Um, and you're thinking, okay, now's the time to go. And you make that kind of leap. I mean, what, what was the, what was the, the push? Did you get a push or, or did you jump? <laughs> what was the driver behind making that step out the door? That's a very good point. So uh, I, uh, I met a founder who told me that uh, one of his best feelings in the world was uh, when he gave his resignation letter to say, I'm going to start my company. And he said, still today, I can tell you everything which happened step by step, walking into the office, the champagne I drank afterwards and uh, all of that. I was like, wow, actually, it's true. And then he said, you, you're never going to be ready. You know, it's, uh, you, you're actually never going to be ready. You'll probably be ready after you retire or your children will be ready. So just... Uh, 
there's a moment where you have to push the door and quit. And so <laughs> that probably was the push uh, because it kind of teased me. And then, he, he, yeah, he provoked me saying that uh, actually, if you if you don't do it now, then when are you going to do it? And do you really have what it takes yeah. to to jump, etc.? So he kind of provoked me, and uh, and I did quit. So there was a tiny push, um, and uh, and then afterwards there was a. There are a lot of things where I wasn't prepared at all, and uh, I wish I would have done it uh, differently. So, for example, I'm a very social person. I mean, just with this podcast, you can figure out that I'm very talkative. Uh, I make very long answers to your questions, and so I it's it's very hard for me to work on my own. And uh, and at the very beginning, I was literally on my own. That's it, just me. And uh, and I wasn't ready for this uh, at all. I even during my studies, my work, I I had never to face a situation where I was in my own with nobody to, on my own sorry with nobody in front of me to challenge me or tease me or whatever and so uh, and that lasts way too long six to nine months before I hired my first intern uh, and uh, I would probably make it uh, way shorter the the other thing for which I wasn't prepared is the, this whole protocol for startups now, which is like so famous. Like first you meet uh, prospects, you show them what could become some kind of MVP and then you design the MVP, then you challenge the MVP and then you know that you will have to put the MVP to the bin and start again. This whole thing, which makes that when now someone starts is, uh, is very clear. Um, I, I, I had no clue about it to start a tech business. So I was a non-tech founder in a tech industry uh, on my own. And so uh, so the beginnings were were, were quite uh, harsh. And this is where I, I, I realized, like, wait a minute, I don't have a parachute. I don't know exactly where I'm landing. Obviously, the wind is bringing me uh, in a different place. I can't even dive straight. And so that was, uh, that was the fun bit. And the way you can... Um, so you have to bounce back on your feet and for this it's uh i think it's uh sales and uh how you pitch your product uh how you engage with people how you start to storytell uh this is where you you start to have a, a business model and an approach and you can uh and and the first time you sell something is uh is a it's a great feeling it's a great feeling yeah it's a real rush yeah I suppose as a private equity uh, worker at that time, uh, if that's the right way to describe people who work in private equity, but as a private equity professional, your view on early stage businesses would have been different because they're generally quite developed by the time private equity comes into play. And what you were experiencing was something completely new. So your frame of reference, perhaps, as you rightly said, you, you thought you were jumping into one area, but you, the wind blew you in a completely different direction. Um, but you used, interesting that you brought an intern in early to help you. Was that, had you already by this time de designed the product yourself? And, and what was this intern doing for you? Oh, yeah. no, at the very beginning, I had a tech agency and uh, we built a product together. They were challenging me a lot and uh, I figured out that uh, I didn't have the answers to all their questions. But uh, this is where I, I wasn't familiar enough with the process. So rather than interviewing more in order to get the answers that you don't have and that you thought you had, uh, I, I kind of stubbornly took uh, big takes on, uh, on the product and that was... Uh, that was a that was a mistake. Uh, you ego is probably your best friend and your worst friend when you uh, you have to believe in yourself because you're building something that others haven't built. Uh, otherwise, uh, 
uh, otherwise it's it would already be there and maybe you wouldn't have uh, you wouldn't haven't uh, you wouldn't have built it but uh, so ego is your best friend uh, because it's a driving force but at the same time you, you you need to know when to tame it so that you don't trust your instinct it's it's very hard actually because you're doing something which doesn't exist so you have to trust your instinct and at the same time you have to know when you're wrong which is very very hard in a way so going back to your question uh, first there was a tech agency and then afterwards uh, I I hired an intern to help me out in in creating and I had I had limits in my uh, music skills so when we started the when we started the product uh, I really needed uh, someone to guide me through with the catalog and then the second intern was uh, uh, someone in uh, digital marketing and so I had made a case study and, and the guy cracked it uh, uh, I mean I, I don't know if Demba is going to uh, hear this podcast but uh, I uh, I can thank him for for the very beginnings of, uh, of Yama and how inspiring he had been during his uh, his uh, his interviews and he had worked really hard to 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 really make a point. It was uh, it was super interesting. So this is where I realized that uh, uh, also you I, I had trained like ten years to start my business and uh, and before I could really feel ready and some other people they just ready to do stuff you know do new stuff uh, just yes. outside of school. So it's it's quite a it's quite an impressive skill. Yes, well, I'm learning that myself coming to uh, building a business a bit later in my career and, and now starting to learn about product development, which is a whole different discipline. But I found if you've got good advisors, good mentors around you and, and good people uh, and even experts like you that you can bounce ideas around, it really helps you formulate those um, but what would you say about this idea that you just got to be comfortable about this idea of being uncomfortable? It's something that, that I talk a lot about that I learned in my previous life in the core. You know, we were taught to be comfortable about being uncomfortable. Is that something that you've had to come to terms with as a founder? Yes, and that's very interesting because not everybody in the organization can be uncomfortable with being uncomfortable. Because there's a moment where you have to deliver something absolutely perfect for your customers. So there is, there, there are yeah. moments and there are skills or there are products which need to be delivered uh, absolutely uh, perfectly. You as the CEO or the founder, it's true that uh, you have to feel comfortable about being uncomfortable, but narrowing down the the aspects where you're uh, when you're not comfortable. There are there are risks that you can take, but you can't take uh, too many risks or or be too much in the unknown. I mean, what I'm what I'm saying will sound probably so obvious to someone external, but uh, the way I'm framing things, I'm thinking about all all what I had to go through and the the, the split. So I would say, like nothing related to your customers should be uh, should put you uncomfortable. Like if you feel uncomfortable about what your customers need, then you you're in trouble. And uh, I'm talking about it uh with uh i mean with experience it's more it's more what i lived and does then that the, mean is if, if a customer is challenging you then what on product features or on deal structure i mean just dive a bit deeper into that when you talk about yeah, yeah. so if you if you don't know feature. yeah that, that's uh so if you don't know exactly what you're delivering to them and what they're ready to pay for because it's uh it's really good then uh you you really have a problem and sometimes there are a lot of businesses where they 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 haven't worked hard enough 
on the on the real 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 pain point number one and then all the other pain points which mm. are uh, behind so you you can make people save a lot of money for example but then afterwards you're gonna make them save time and you can think that because everybody's booking the product saying like oh you make me save so much time you're like okay this is my pain point one no actually it's it's not the cherry on the cake it's it's still necessary to your product but it's it's like what comes afterwards which is like actually they're making me save x and on top of things i'm gonna win uh uh, three days in a, in a month uh, by using this platform. So it's, uh, it's, you, you have to be able to rank the pain points very accurately. And the second thing where I think you can't afford to be uncomfortable with is your gross margin. Is how, how much are you charging people? How much is it going to cost you every time you're going to produce something? This is a, it sounds very stupid what I'm saying, but for a lot of SaaS platforms, you can end up getting confused between the R&D, the necessary investment to build a product which you will be able to resell indefinitely mm. in the perfect theory of SaaS platforms and what is custom made, especially at the very beginning of your platform. And this arbitrage, I'm not saying that we're not perfect at Vyama and I, I could uh, praise Simon, our product manager, to help me in working on this. But this is something like this is like the big elephant in the room, and too many times you can just jump into something without really realizing where's your threshold between your gross margin and your and your admin cost or your or your R and D. So I think, uh, and then for the rest, yes, you can feel uncomfortable on the product on the on the potential of your market for example because uh, things unfold with time so you can start very narrow uh, Altman uh, Sam Altman from the wine uh, incubator he made an interview saying like uh, you can start with a very 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 tiny market of people who are obsessed with what you're offering and they can't live without you and then you work out the other mm. Uh, the, the other markets uh, which could still need uh, which could also need what you're doing so probably you can feel a bit more uncomfortable about your market size and your go-to-market but not on your gross margin and uh, the pain points you're solving I don't know if it makes sense what I'm saying yeah it does definitely and um, that, that's great insight because I think a lot of businesses the, the danger early on is that you get steered by your early customers and if you're building things that you then can't amortize across a broader client base, then that really eats into your gross margin. So key takeaway there is be be very aware of that. And the other thing I take away from what, what you just said, Guillaume, was this idea that um, people will probably want you for one specific feature or, or, or uh, element that you bring to make their lives easier. And sometimes that could, that's all that's needed to get traction. And then you can build off the top of it. Building these hyper-complex products that have got too many features that no one's going to use is expensive, slows things down, and, and can be a problem. Um, so those are a couple of things that hopefully I interpreted the, the right way uh, that, that you described them. Yeah, and definitely. Um, I'll just add, just also very humbly, that uh, I'm not nailing the process perfectly, and I'm not. But these are the problems which we're facing every day, and I know that every day, if we don't improve on this, we're not going to be able to grow. It's not as if I was saying like uh, I've solved it, and uh, please copy us. It's a, uh, it's something that you're facing all the time. I did a seminar uh, in February and we had like four elephants uh, in the room, uh, kind of uh, quotes. And uh, one of them is to to face the big problems that you have. So uh, it's uh, and that's uh, one of them.
So I think the one thing which saved us at Vierma is that every six months we reassess what are the real big problems that we're facing which prevents us from uh, growing and be sure that 90% of the time is dedicated to solving those. Do you do that with the team? Do you sit them down as a group? Because how big is your team now? So we're, uh, we're a bit more than 20. And in February, we did that with uh, everybody we could. Uh, and uh, we're going to do that in uh, six months afterwards. So end of August, uh, more now with um, a, a C-level organization. Uh, and then hopefully in January with uh, everybody. We're fully remote. And so it's very important that we meet. But when we meet, I think it's very boring to put everybody in the room and make them watch slides, you know? They haven't seen each other in like three months, six yeah. months. Sometimes it's the first time. So you want to make uh, your message short and sweet. And then uh, they need to talk, have fun, and take a great pleasure at uh, working together, you know? Finding the sense of purpose of working together on-site uh, together. So we do meet, but I'm trying as much as possible to make it uh, uh, more than fun. It's uh, meaningful. Yeah, yeah. But having some fun in the, uh, the process, and, and often that's where the relationships are cemented. It's where the creativity really starts to emerge when, when people have not got that pressure on them. Um, so I think that's a great, great idea. We need to do more of it. So let's move now to that first sale, because you alluded to it a bit earlier about the thrill of getting that first purchase. Can you remember what your first deal was and how did it make you feel? Yeah. So um, we sold uh, music programs for an um, uh, interim company, a job, uh, a, a temporary job uh, company. Uh, I, I mixed up the word, sorry for my French. So excuse my French, as you say. Uh, so uh, the <laughs> that's what so, you say, yes. <laughs> so um, uh, it was a yeah, it was a music programs which were related to the DNA of the company, and we we had made a quite an extensive uh, search, and I had found a cool track, uh, a hidden gem. And, uh, and at the end, I, 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 I sent him the quote and uh, everything. So I wrapped up everything together, actually, the quote and the solution, which is uh, wrong. And, uh, but I really wanted to make the sale. So I wanted the guy to be completely convinced about, uh, about it. And, uh, and then he admitted that he would have been ready to pay like, twice more for this. And uh, so, uh, so at first... He, I mean, he made jokes about the fact that I, I need to improve my sales skills. But for me, I took it as like a massive opportunity because we were already making money with this, uh, with this, uh, with this proposal that we made, and I could see that my my price elasticity was way higher than what I thought because I brought value in in the curation, and so uh, the, the, it really helped yeah. me in figuring out what was. Uh, what it is that uh, people are ready to buy. And uh, by the way, we were talking about pain points at the beginning, but not everybody has pain points. Uh, I always say, the, I always take the same example, but when you go to a three-star Michelin restaurant, you don't have a pain point of like, please take 500 That's euros true. out of my wallet right now just for food. <laughs> it's, uh, so it's, you go there because you have like a, an immense pleasure getting out of it. And so we, with this entire... Um, protocol or mindset that we imported from 
Silicon Valley, which is amazing and it brought so much to the industry. We, I think in Europe, we lack the capacity to think outside of the box and to challenge the mindsets and the toolkits which we import and we think like, okay, this is what we have to do. But uh, there are other ways uh, to to make people pay for, for something they will be very happy uh, using. So that was my first uh, that was my first sale. Great, thank you. Um, you. You talked there about challenging the mindset and the toolkit. So you're referring there to the way that other parts of the world, and, and by that we, we largely mean Silicon Valley and the way that they built software sales products. You mean challenging the assumptions on how you would go to market with a product like that? Or, are, or is it more cultural, do you think, when you consider what it's like to do business this side of the water versus there? No, no, I think it's actually uh, both uh, is that uh, they invent a lot of things and we're kind of uh, copying to some extent, especially for the the way the VC funds are contemplating investment opportunities and how they're making their choices, how we frame our own uh, innovation process. Uh, which is great to get inspiration from uh, from them. And I'm not criticizing uh, the way it's framed in the United States. It's more the opposite, is that they're showing the way. But at the same time, we could probably, uh, we, we could probably see things uh, differently. So VCs in Europe have massively focused on uh, SaaS platforms, for example. And they've turned around a lot of uh, opportunities yeah. because they don't have the ecosystem. They don't have the know-how. They don't know how to tackle the issues. And they haven't created the depth of the market to to create the liquidity for the next rounds so we've missed on a lot of uh, deep tech opportunities so but and it also it's very true also for entertainment content and uh, streaming uh, the media industry per se is completely underfunded in Europe compared to the United States and we're struggling to get the business models uh, out of it so and, it, and it's kind of a vicious circle so basically it's uh, American players who are winning the whole thing but that's because it, it's they are better on many levels but also they they have an ecosystem to be funded which is uh, which is way higher i i think one, one one very good example is what happened to daily motion which was on its way of competing with youtube and which is now uh still it's a very nice business but it's uh it's not what it could have been uh there was there were some political um uh, influences or, or decisions which were taken for political reasons more than for business reason related to Dailymotion. Their capacity to raise funds also was capped compared to what Google had invested on YouTube and how they saw the potential of the of the platform. So I, I think that we, we need to learn uh, what we haven't done in the past. We, we need to reflect on what we haven't done in Europe in the past 10-15 years that we could have done better had we seen our own business models and our own industries the way they are rather than trying to import a ready-made uh, toolkit do, do yeah i don't know if i'm being clear yeah uh, okay i think I, yes i understand where you're coming from there yeah um thank you great insight there Gil. um what's your view on on just where the the european state of funding is at the, at the moment I, I want to see the glass half uh, full. So I, when I was investing in times like this, everybody would pull the plug and it would be game over for, uh, for most, uh, most startups and uh, most funds. And it would, be, uh, it, it would be very hard. 
And even if we, um, I think, invested half the amounts of uh, last year in uh, in France, uh, more or less, and in Europe, it's uh, the, the the stats are really are really low. Uh, the The ecosystem is way more mature, and uh, they they're protecting the businesses which have an amazing potential. Uh, they're still investing in new opportunities, so you still have a lot of fresh cash for AI. We were talking about it uh, just before, so there is this feeling of not missing the the industrial revolution which is taking place even if there are cycles it doesn't mean that you're in, it's not because you're in a low uh, curve that uh, you should stop invest and there are some phrases which keep on circulating on uh, on social media i think it's a uh, I, i think it's nice to have this in mind is that you have amazing businesses which uh, which started during crisis times so it's a uh, It's uh, it's it's good. I want to see the glass half full, which is that uh, people we keep on cycling the bike so that we don't uh, so that we don't fall. Yeah, because it, it again back to what you said at the beginning of the conversation. It's it's one of those cycles, and you've got to keep pushing through. And there is money out there. Yes, in being invested in um, some more. Um, fast growth areas like AI, um, maybe even climate tech and other impact technologies as well. Um, but yes, it, it's it'll come round again. Um, and I wonder if we're starting to see those green shoots at the moment. I mean, as, as someone who's who's raised and is actively in, involved in that community, are you seeing any improvements as we kind of get to the summer of 2023? Or is it still business as normal for the next kind of six to, to nine months? Uh, no, stats are pretty cold still today, I think. It's just that for impact and uh, climate tech, the situation is improving, but it, it's a bit like AI because it, you clearly have fashions in the, in the VC industry and that's, I think, uh, problematic. So startups which couldn't get any funding uh, five years ago are now overfunded on crazy valuations. So, so basically, you've got sectors which go through heavy cycles, but overall, VCs keep on investing to on fashionable Uh, opportunities uh, at uh, very high valuations so that's that's quite uh, unfortunate i would say that's it for uh, climate tech it's quite particular because we we really need to do something and every year we're not doing something it's uh, it's a big problem we're, we're super late so if cash is finally pouring i think it's a good thing Yeah, I definitely need it. I often, when I, when we talk about it internally here at uh, RevCelerate, we talk about the most cost-efficient way of raising capital right now is from selling more of what you've got. Um, and if you can get actually win more customers in this market, then you're giving less away and you're doing an awful lot more than just shoring up your business. You're making it really attractive to investors once you come out of this, this cycle. Um, how are you going about selling more of, of your offering in the current climate because you touched on at the beginning that said that that some of these relationships take a long time one of the trends that we're hearing at the moment is that many companies have pipeline but they're not getting closure they're not getting conversion deals reaching agreement because people are holding back and making those commitments are you seeing that in your market and if so what are you doing to help push those deals over the line So the first thing is that uh, we 
we try to link as much as possible uh, the our proposition to KPIs which are relevant to the organizations at this uh, point in time. So, for example, we've developed a player with uh, CTAs embedded into them, which are dynamic, which helps uh, concept halls sell more tickets because the challenge uh, today is to be able to, post-COVID, to make people come back to the to the to the festival halls and so or the concert halls that's one way and for corporates uh, they have a huge problem of uh, retention currently and uh, uh, young uh, professionals are quitting very easily and so we 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 found out that uh, streaming art programs and uh, b- making a bridge between art and the values of the company is uh, is perceived really well by the employees and so it helps decrease the the churn and increase the brand engagement of the employees so trying to link as much as possible the the your business to the kpis of the organization at a given point in time so either cost savings or increasing sales increasing margins or retaining employees and then narrow down your prospection so that's the good thing when you're a small business is that you can afford narrowing down who you're putting your most uh, effort with and narrowing down to your prospects who um, uh, who really want to build something with you and who really who are deeply concerned about this uh, this uh, this KPI that they have to manage so it's not for it's not for everybody like you would be surprised like we're our player works really well 20% of the people who stream music uh, end up clicking on the links to buy a concert ticket it's uh, it's uh, it's super high but you would still have a lot of organizations which would tell you like oh not now it's not for me okay so uh, you have to really focus uh, and and and, uh, and 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 keep working with people who are uh, obsessed with uh, not interested or just uh, caring about, but really obsessed about this KPI that you can solve. I think that's one of the most important insights that I'd take away from a conversation like this, particularly as you're trying to get deals over the line. What what to paraphrase what what I, what I heard there is the importance of having a business case that's absolutely aligned to the objectives of the company that you're selling to your customer is what's going to make the difference. I mean, even having a business case that just talks about ROI from a financial perspective isn't enough. You've got to be able to show that you're aligned with all the other objectives that business is trying to to achieve. And you gave two brilliant examples there of how closely you're aligned to them. The other thing I take away as well, Gil, from, from that was uh, you're much more about quality over quantity. It's finding the right companies that are trying to do the job with the help of your products and technologies that will make the difference. And if you can zero in on that in this environment, I guess you're reducing the cost to some degree because you're very targeted on what you're trying to do and you're strengthening the relationship, which probably gives you a longer uh, business relationship than perhaps beforehand. Would you agree with that? I totally agree with that. And the fact that we we focus heavily on personas who deeply care about what we do or what we can offer them. And they deeply care about solving some problems in their own corporate. And they think that what we do can help them in achieving this. And, and then we build long-term relationships with them. And once you've nailed one or two case studies then this is where you pave the way for uh, big upsells actually i'm not I, I don't want to give advice to 
anybody or any case. It's just that in our context where building relationships take a lot of time, where you have to build trust, it's more important to really focus on some people with whom you're going to bet over the long run and they're going to accompany you. And uh, over the long run, statistically, you will be able to upsell them and create a proper business out of it. And you'll get out of the crisis stronger because you will be able to tell all the other customers, by the time you didn't do anything with us, we managed to help uh, client X, Y, and Z uh, re multiplying by three their own personal uh, targets, for example. Uh, so you'll, you'll walk out of this stronger and uh, also in a way it's, uh, it's easier. It, it, it seems more difficult to scale probably because you're focusing on quality and not quantity. But I think that uh, you, it, creates, uh, it creates repeat business and the value of your brand also. And the time will come when uh, you get enough momentum behind that enough people hear about you. Uh, or your sales team does more of, of going to the right people where that'll start to build momentum and that'll start to deliver the scale that you're after. But we've gone from this growth at any cost mentality to one now, particularly around investment that says, do you have a path to profitability? Are you really adding value here to the customers? This has got longevity, this business. And I think you do that by being more focused. Also capturing that success. Uh, I heard there that You know, if you're going to start talking about these as case studies, make sure you capture that success as you're having the conversation. Get input from your client and use that as social proof that you're solving the problem for, for like customers elsewhere. Yes, and one thing which took us a lot of time to nail in details, and it's very important that you that you would do, is that you, you know who, what's the persona Um, that you're targeting and for whom you're relevant. So um, our customers, they're, they're smart. The decision makers who buy our product, they're all smart. They're ahead of, uh, they're ahead of the game a bit in terms of uh, innovation and how digital is going to impact their own business. They deeply care about the company they're working in. And they, they want to make a change. They, they have a career path and uh, we're meeting them at a specific level of their career and they want to go to the next level. And they think that with us and other uh, solutions that they're going to buy, they are going to be able to deliver their own uh, objectives and their own uh, KPIs which were assigned by their boss and they're going to be able to make a difference. And so when you help ambitious people Uh, make a difference uh, this is how you can grow with uh, this is how we can grow with them in our in, in our industry so that took us a lot of time but uh, I it, it saves you so much time once you figure out who will never buy your product you know there are some people they will probably need like probably their children are going to buy your product but not them And so it's it's it, and it's okay. It, it, it's definitely okay. Uh, what matters is to build uh, the the right relationship with uh, with with the right people at the beginning, and then afterwards you'll be able to communicate differently. It's a what I'm saying in a way. It's a very classic uh, product life cycle uh, curve. So there's nothing new. It's just 
what is the exact persona of the people who are at the very beginning of your product cycle. And it's not only the fan base of Apple, you know, this, people for different products have very different uh, ways of uh, approaching it. And uh, it took us a lot of time to find out for us. And I would, uh, my very humble advice would be for any entrepreneur to work really hard on the common aspects between your first five, 10 customers. The first five guys who say, or women who say, what you're doing is amazing. What's the common point between all of them? Get, capture that early and write that down and see if it resonates with others as you go. When you talk about personas, are you considering everybody that's involved in that decision to buy? So whether that's someone who's ultimately going to sign the checks or the people that are either going to use it or they're going to have a say or whether or not they, they buy it. Do you consider all of those people as part of this sort of persona collective that you mentioned? Uh, so, um, no, you have a lot of uh, stakeholders and decision makers in the process, especially in big corporates, but you all, always have uh, one or two, preferably two ambassadors who are going to be the main users of your, of your product or who can see uh, what will be the main impact, even if they're not using it on a daily basis. This is who I refer to uh, when I talk about uh, persona. So, and, and those people have a, a common thread. Then afterwards, for people who sign the check or decision makers, they, they might be very different. But being aware of those people and the nuances of what's important to them is part of that sales process that you, you follow. Is that correct? Ah, yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, if you if you listen to an ambassador for like six months and then you discover that actually uh, uh, they 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 hate each other with the accounting department and that there's no way uh, what you are pitching is going to be in the budget, it's uh, yeah, it's a waste of time. So, and I, I'm making it caricatural to strengthen the point, but yes, of course, uh, you you need to have a global approach. You can't rely only on one uh, on one person. It's just that you all have there's always someone driving the car <laughs> even with ai today there's still one only one person really driving the car yeah Kim, thank you very much for that uh, what advice would you give to any founder starting out in their journey either having made that leap out of the plane with their parachute and they're drifting in the wind or they're well and truly on the ground now trying to figure this out as they go what advice is a an experienced founder would you give anybody in that situation so this advice is not uh, like I'm, probably in six months from now I would give you another advice but uh, it's a don't work too hard and choose how you allocate your time so because I, because because of my studies where in in French curriculum you can work uh, hours weekends included and nights then afterwards you do internships where you also expected to work a lot then afterwards I worked in finance where I was working so much when I started my company, there was no way I wouldn't uh, work really hard. So, but you have to make an arbitrage between quality and and quantity for for work. And uh, reflecting on uh, how much I invested my time, I think that uh, it wasn't all the time because I always consider that my time is uncapped as a founder. Uh, I don't think that I've been efficient in uh, everything I've uh, everything I've done. And you don't take enough time because you're too much into doing stuff. You don't take the time to reflect on the journey you're taking and uh, whether you're taking the the, yeah. the the best road to achieve this. And so uh, I would say uh, don't uh, 
uh, yeah, focus on the quality of your of the time that you're uh, at work, and not uh, and, and but cap it. Yeah. So know how to kind of switch off, use the downtime, take a break, enjoy your weekend, because um, you need that to recharge for the next phase. Yeah. Is there anything that you would add to that specifically around the commercial aspects of building a business? I mean, we've touched on a lot of different topics. And again, we could talk for days on this. But when you think about what we've discussed today, anything that you would add? Uh, there is a there is something which we're currently working on today, and uh, at Yama, and uh, I I think it's strategic, and we should have tackled this uh, way before. Is how the sales team and the product team work more than closely. You know, they need to get. It's we're talking about a marriage there actually. Uh, from the, from the tech in the in the tech world, it's very common to have a product team and a tech team very 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 working really really closely. But I think that this process of figuring out what are the features which your customers are requesting, which or their needs which haven't uh, gave birth to a proper feature yet because the product team hasn't worked on it. But just collecting those needs and being able to prioritize continuously so that you're always ahead of the game, that's, uh, that, that's I think, uh, that's the next thing I would really like to nail at Viama. I, I think I spent too much time being sure that product and tech would, uh, would work perfectly. And I think it's a product and tech, of course, but uh, fed with, uh, with B2B. And uh, your sales team is in direct contact with your customers. So it's, uh, it's insight at scale, uh, which uh, you should never disregard. And your, 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 your sales team uh, is, is your, your first way to do market research. Every no that you get is a massive insight about what you need to do next. I think. Yes, it is. And, and we certainly get a lot of those on the sales side. Yeah. yeah. If you have an email of someone saying no and why, this is, yeah. uh, th- this is, this is treasure or uh, this is a truffle. Yeah, that, that's absolute gold. Do your product team, do they talk to customers as well? Do the sales team take them out? Do they meet with customers and hear this firsthand? Yeah, yeah, we we have a we have a process in place, um, especially since we sell streaming services to corporates or institutions, which will be consumed by end users. So it's very important to interview the end users to figure out what they would want, and that we don't have uh, any filter in between. So uh, we do we do have an interview process, which is uh, which is quite lengthy, but you can always do more. And you can, and you always need to work on how you collect the feedback and uh, and aggregate it to to anticipate on the next uh, features you need to build on your product roadmap. And I don't think that there is a. I'm I'm saying this because I I don't think that there is a a product which does that uh, really really well. Maybe I need to investigate if uh, Salesforce or some or HubSpot. Uh, helping uh, to aggregate uh, feedback and feed it to the product teams. But uh, uh, if anyone listening to this podcast has a product in mind which does that, please <laughs> send it to me at gd.vyama.com. Well, well the, the most obvious 
yeah, the most obvious is really around call recording. It's like conversations using tools like Gong and Gemini. If you're using those, then you can create snippets and product people can hear the language because often it's in the way that customers describe the problem that they're looking to solve with your solution. It can be very different to the way that you think internally. Um, so there are tools out there. What's interesting about that approach as well is we talked at the beginning about protecting your gross margin and not developing products that don't amortize across the entire client base. And yet salespeople can sometimes be guilty of bringing feature ideas that they absolutely feel must happen to be able to bring a deal over the line. I guess if you have an approach like you described, then everybody knows where they stand. Like sales know they're bringing this insight back to the product team and the product team are getting that frontline feedback from uh, potential customers and end using customers. And that can help the product. But that's the combination I think you referred to, the importance of, of the sales and product teams working together rather than against each other because sales are demanding one feature and product's not convinced they should be working on that. Very true. Um, Gil, this has been great. Thank you very much uh, for talking to us today uh, about this fascinating story as to where you are at the moment. I have a bit of a tradition where I get to ask you a question that has uh, a bit of a military slant on it. Um, we've already kind of used the analogy fairly well throughout the conversation with your parachutes and what have you. So thank you for playing along. Um, so let me ask you this quick question before we wrap up and you tell everyone a bit more about how they can get in touch with you and what you're looking for. Ready for this? Yeah. Okay. So your quickfire question is, just as military units must establish a strong rhythm to march effectively, timing can be crucial in the music industry and for startups. Can you share an instance where timing, maybe launching a new feature or a new campaign, played a key role in helping you drive sales or was complete disaster because you mistimed it? So we we started our B2B activity right during COVID times. And so in a way, that was a perfect timing. So I, I know that the situation was horrendous for a lot of people, but... Uh, we it's 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 with the fact that most cultural institutions were closed that they had to find a way to keep on communicating with the the proper setting uh which made that uh it's uh the, so the timing was uh the timing was right yeah so uh, that was a uh, that was for the spot on example and then the feature which was released at uh at the wrong time um uh, I'll, uh, yeah, yeah the the thing is that there are a lot of features that we released in which we believed a lot, but uh, it, they failed <laughs> catastrophically. But not because of uh, wrong timing. So I'll have to. Uh, so I have I have my my fair share of uh, of failures, but uh, not because of uh, <laughs> not, not because of timing. Um, not necessarily because of timing. Yeah, good. Well, thank you for for sharing that with us. Guillaume, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Where can people find out more about you, your work, and Vialma? So uh, the easiest way to reach out to me is on LinkedIn. So uh, my name is Guillaume Descotte, D like Daniel, E-S-C-O-T-T-E-S, founder of Vialma. Uh, or you can write me an email, gd at vialma.com, uh, so, uh, so that I can answer you. And uh, if you want to stream some music and relax and unwind with beautiful jazz, or classical playlists, uh, you can go on viama.com uh, on uh, 
the App Store, uh, whether Android or uh, Apple. And if you need to engage your employees or pamper your customers, uh, you can also uh, come to us and uh, we'll create amazing uh, cultural journeys online to uh, uh, to mesmerize your, uh, your, uh, your audiences. Lovely. Guillaume, thanks again for your time. Great to speak to you. Look forward to catching up again soon. Thank you so much, Phil. It was a pleasure to be your guest. Bye. Bye for now. That brings us to the end of another insightful episode of Behind Startup Lines. A huge thanks to Guillaume for sharing his unique journey from investor to founder and the fascinating insights into Vialma and the world of classical music and art streaming. As we heard from Guillaume today, the most efficient growth capital often comes from winning and retaining more customers. And remember, understanding your customers' needs, whether they're expressed as pain points or not, is crucial to the success of any business. Don't forget to subscribe to Behind Startup Lines so you never miss a story like Guillaume's. If you like what you heard today, please leave us a five-star review and tell me what you enjoyed about today's episode. Your feedback helps me bring you more of the content you love. Thanks for joining me. And until next time, this is your host, Phil Guest, signing off from Behind Startup Lines. Over and out.